Greetings to you sisters and brothers. This is Steve Muhammad coming to you from Refuge Depot. As we all know, the weather is extreme. We need to prepare our homes to become a sanctuary and not a cemetery. Please go to refugedepot.com or click in the description below to find all your disaster preparedness items and survival techniques. That's refugedepot.com or click in the description below. If you have any questions, please call 937-985-0779 or email refugedepot at gmail.com. Because 
In truth, teen suicide and depression is not the norm. It is really abnormal for an individual to want to seek an end to their life. So with that, we want to um, go down the road and I want the panel to introduce themselves. And if we can start with you, my sister, and then we'll introduce our keynote speaker. Okay. Uh, my name is DeAsia Thompson. I am a licensed independent social worker. Um, I'm the owner of Rise Counseling Group, which is a um, social justice-based group private practice. Uh, we're located in Centerville, Ohio, and um, we primarily see women of color um, struggling with anxiety, depression, mood disorders, um, self-harm, and suicidal ideation. My name is Kaylin Tiggs. Um, I'm an air medical research contractor for the Navy. Um, all the research that I do is designed to understand uh, cognition deficits in pilots in extreme environments such as space, water, um, up in the air while they're flying. Um, I'm aspiring to get my PhD in clinical neuropsychology where I'll be talking about trauma and brain trauma and the traumatized brain in different environments. And um, I'm also a mentor and a tutor for math and English. And so I personally have experience working with youth who um, experience mental health issues in their educational setting. And so I see how those mental <coughs> illnesses and those um, mental health problems affect them at an educational level. And so <coughs> I'm here to kind of talk about um, maybe some treatment options from a scientific perspective. Hello, my name is Robbie Brandon. I'm a registered nurse. I've been a nurse for 30 years. I've been doing mental health for 20 years, well over 20 years, African American from this community. Anyone who fits within that children, youth, and family range between 5 and 35, so I work with children with life, trying to figure out who they are and where they want to go and what do my parents do to save space for African Americans. And um, we, we do that because um, just kind of with the culture of things and with the way that um, police brutality has been with activists needing safe spaces, um, with black women needing safe spaces. We thought it was important, or I thought it was important to make sure that we had um, accessible services along with Robbie. She and I worked closely together, um, just making sure that we were servicing the needs of the people in the community who needed the help the most. I will Thank say she had her own practice for you, but you've been practicing for a while. I have, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. And so we want um, our sister, Sister Monika, if you could come up and issue a teen suicide and depression. So please let's give our sister a warm round of applause. Sister
in our lives and it kind of manifests and materializes into what we see as, as mental health diagnoses or symptoms. Um, so I had a couple saying, um, boy, I'm a beat the Okay, so many of these things, even though we know them, they represent the new ways in which our family should demonstrate love, um, but in some ways vulnerable is who are children of these parents, and they tell me that they feel stuck in their lives, they feel unhealthy relationships in which they find themselves in, and they're also coming to terms with the unhealthy relationships and interactions that they have with their parents. So they come to me confused, unmotivated, sad, in other cultures as well as our own, but as of depression and suicide. Come from the most resilient people who have endured the most historical oppression, um, but yet we're starting to trend with the highest rates of suicide according to the statistics. And for many of us, due to our religious upbringings, we have been frightened into thinking about suicide, even though it has crossed many of our minds. So my lens as a clinician now requires me to understand that behind the laughter of the colloquialisms within our culture, um, that many of us doing the work, we now know that behind mine and many of us, unvalidated, who felt voiceless, angry, frustrated, of true emotional expression. Um, decreased energy, fatigue, um, 
being slowed down, so folks sleeping a long time, right? So, you know, somebody that wants to sleep like 10 hours a day, um, difficulty concentrating, um, having a tough time making decisions or remembering things, um, appetite for weight changes are often a sign of depression. Um, the thoughts of death or suicide, suicide attempts are um, telltale signs of depression, and then also irritability. And so it looks different for different people. Uh, during the time when I worked um, in residential, we would often see a lot of hostility and anger, and it was just kind of that feeling of feeling like they had no power, nobody was listening to them, um, and that took the form of them, you know, maybe being aggressive or maybe yelling at folks and just kind of not wanting to be bothered, being withdrawn, um, not really enjoying the things that they would normally enjoy doing. And so um, for the parents out there, it's important for you to stay engaged with your kids and to, you know, check in with them. So one thing that I teach um, some of my parents that I work with is to have like a daily check-in. Some, you know, you have to teach your kids how to talk to you. And so that may mean, um, like if your kid is not a big talker, rate your day, right? So on that, you know, where do you fall on that scale? We also um, teach, um, emotions through like the happy faces so like the emojis and things like that um, for the younger for the younger kids so if they're having you know a bad can come to you and express how they're feeling because a lot of times especially with like talk therapy that's a habit of um, knowing that they can come to you and express these things to you without judgment right because that's an okay what, right. what you what you so upset about right when in reality Sometimes they do have things to be upset about. They may have had a hard day at school. They could have those days um, just like we have those days. And so having the daily conversation with them and teaching them how to verbally express themselves, um, that helps to alleviate some of these symptoms to my mom, and maybe that'll make me feel better. But it teaches them like they have someone to go to and that they have um, somebody in their corner um, that they kind of... Um, in terms of like the warnings of suicide. And so one thing um, suicide is, is if you're paying attention it's about being gatekeepers and like really being mindful of um, what folks are doing. Um, some of the signs that we really take away from that, um, obviously folks talking about wanting to die. If, you know, I'm thinking about harming myself or I'm thinking about killing myself. Like that's something that I have to take seriously. And if somebody is expressing that to you, you as the parent, you as the mentor, you as the teacher or the principal or whoever that, you know, however you're interacting with the teens in your life, you have to have a boldness to say, are you thinking about killing yourself? Are you thinking about taking your life? It, this is so serious, like you cannot tiptoe around this, right? It's literally a matter of life and death. And so um, if... I'm sorry. <laughs> so we get that by five, but thank okay, you. Okay, go ahead. And then we'll open it up for discussion where we can get the more. The cultural effects of um, people's experiences in their environment, such as being abused, neglected, living in poverty, um, having a poor education, not having access emotionally, but 
what is not common knowledge is how it actually alters the proper structure and functioning of the brain. And so me going into neuropsychology, I want to propose that we start using neuroimaging and neuropsychological uh, assessments so that we can understand how these environments are actually affecting the brain, affecting the structures right. of the brain, and start using um, that have been inhibited or overly excited by certain environments or certain things that people experience. Um, and I also want to point out that not all youth that are suicidal are depressed. And so when we ignore certain symptoms, um, we possibly may be ignoring other type of psycho, um, psychological issues that may be going on or psychiatric issues that may be going on. Some youth may not be suffering from depression. They may be dealing with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, something like that. But I noticed that we as a community don't like to address these issues. And we sometimes just jump to the conclusion of depression automatically when it could be something else. Um, we know that people who um, have a diagnosis of a psychiatric disorder are automatically more likely to commit suicide. So if we address these issues head on, we may be able to prevent um, the actual suicidal completion um, because we understand that if a person has a psychiatric diagnosis, they may be more likely to attempt suicide and may more likely be successful in that. And so I'm proposing that um, more research be conducted um, and more referrals be made when treating the individuals so that we can actually look at the brain of these individuals who are attempting and maybe have even completed suicide just to see what's going on in their head and how they differ because um, I think it's really it's really important that we look at those and we we know that the brain learns from its environment and alters itself depending on its environment and there's plenty of research that's been done on this on how the brain adapts and sometimes the brain that is designed to protect you adapts in a negative way causing negative behaviors and there are um, going to see a therapist and sitting down and talking to someone that some therapists may be able to begin implementing. For example, virtual reality is a new and upcoming way that we can actually simulate positive environments for youth to go and uh, to go in. It can begin reversing those brain structures that have been off, off uh, excuse me, altered. <laughs> I'm depressed, I never get to leave my home, I never get to leave the environment that I'm in. We can actually, through virtual reality, set them to another environment. We can even use it for other therapeutic um, reasons, such as art therapy. They have um, virtual reality scenarios where you can send someone through an art museum or a, or a history times a week or something like that actually can alter those damaged structures of the brain and the brain can learn to heal itself. There's also infrared light therapy. So there are some people who get depressed. It's cold and dark nine months out of the year, right? And so we can begin using infrared light therapy 
and stimulating those brain regions that change when the seasons change. So we have to start looking at individuals from a holistic perspective. A lot of the times we just deal with those emotional pieces, but we don't deal with the brain, which is a vital organ, which controls all of our behavior. And so we have to begin understanding how that works and the different ways that we can treat that. Thank you. Thank you. You know, sometimes when we watch these sci-fi movies, we look at, for instance, Star Trek. And when my sister was talking about, you know, they had the hologram. I think it's the hologram deck or something like that. Oh, but, yeah. you know, yeah. when you were saying that, that's what my mind went to. They would go into these hologram decks and be on the beach. Be on yeah. the beach, <laughs> right. Be on the beach or do whatever. Um, uh, Sister Rocky, would you like to go ahead? Okay, I'm not sure where to begin with this. Um, I respect and totally appreciate everything you said up on the panel, and I probably come from the old lady standpoint of this whole thing. Um, being in this field for as long as I have, I've seen a whole lot. Um, and I want to start with real quick about the research piece. And I totally agree with Monika here when she talks about the youth risk assessment, risk youth risk behavior assessment, because we've been looking at that for many, many years. And like she said, when you're looking at data, you got to see where your data sources are. Where where is that data coming from? And I'm going to definitely have to take a look at the 2017 because the years before they weren't coming from African American children who were incarcerated, who were in group homes, or who were um, in the inner city. So if I, and that has been brought to their attention many a times that you're leaving out a whole population of people. So the 6.6, .6, I believe, is actually low. Uh. Um, by someone who has worked on the floors of the hospitals, um, I've seen an increase in African-American suicide attempts yeah. drastically. Uh. Um, I think just, uh, I think a year ago, May, I think it was a year ago, the young lady who um, jumped off the bridge in Cincinnati and ended her life. There were four suicides, four African-American suicides in that same month. Um, and we don't talk about it. I worked with some kids from the Urban League, and one of the young men came in, and his friend hung himself in the basement in West Dayton. Nobody's talking about it. So we have to realize that our numbers are only captured by the morgue. Um, and we, we really have to pay attention to what's going on with our children. Um, I share what she was saying, what I, I agree with what she was saying about the dynamics of the brain. I don't know if we realize it, but a woman who is pregnant, the stress that a woman that goes through when she's pregnant right. changes, literally changes the architecture of a child's brain mm. in her womb. Right. So we're looking at the numbers, and, and so I say all the time, like going through right now, I've never seen it. This is 30 years, I'm, the, the change in our children is so drastic right now and the only thing I can look at is the parent. Not blaming the parent, please hear me out. Because when I started Children's Medical Center, crack was really big. You know, right now we're talking about opioids, but crack was huge in 1989, Jesus. Um, but, but, oh God, how old are you? <laughs> I started when I was two. Um, so, but, but I'm just saying that because I remember working on the, in, in the NICU and we had to cover up the blank, the baby's beds with blankets because if you bumped into a child who was a, born to a crack mother, um, their high pitched scream was literally unstoppable. And you just covered them up and just, you know, you fed them, you cared for them, and you put them in the bed, and you covered them so that the light wouldn't disturb them, the noise wouldn't disturb them. You didn't want, you wanted them to rest and heal. 
well, how old are those children now? Mm-hmm. And how old are those children's children now? Mm-hmm. And I'm, not, I'm just saying that we paid so much attention to opioids that we didn't pay attention to something that was drastically killing our community and changing parenting in our community. And as a mother who is, my daughter is 40 years old. Um, and I know how I cared for her. And my thing was, is I grew up in Minnesota Bass impoverished and my thing was I wanted her life to be better than mine was so I worked I went to school and I left her home a lot so that generational changes trying to make things better and leaving our children to kind of fend for themselves the chemical imbalances because of drug addiction the chemical imbalances because of our atmosphere our environment our community the lack of nurturing that we have I think Monika talked about the change in our culture The change in our culture is how we've come from a community of people who care and are always there to a community. We're basically in survival mode. The parents that we work with on a daily basis are in survival mode. Right. I'm not saying that they're, and so when when I talk about discipline to a parent, you know, it's like I'm a generation where, you know, I could walk down the street and Miss Johnson would get me and, you know, but Miss Betty would give me a cookie and if my grandmother was busy, I could sit on the porch and talk to Miss Brown. That doesn't happen anymore. So our children are like learning to survive or raise themselves when parents are in survival mode. So we have to care for the entire family if we look, want to look at changing suicide in our community. You know, because when I have a six-year-old come to me and say, I'm like, well, well what do you want to be? And they say, I want to be here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I have a 16-year-old boy who I'm talking to down in juvenile detention who tells me, Ms. Robin, my life is black. Mm-hmm. I have no future. You know, they're giving up hope. That hopelessness is coming not just from um, the brain structure, but it's coming from the environment. Right. Um, it's coming from a lack of opportunity, a lack of resources, and every bit of that causes changes in our hopefulness, in our, our dynamics, our feelings, our emotions, every bit of that. So when we come from to mental health, we look at mental health from a holistic perspective. There's eight domains to wellness. Each one of those domains must be addressed in order to make sure that our brain is functioning. This is the most powerful organ in our body. The brain runs everything, absolutely everything. And like she said, it is able to heal itself, but we don't even have that. Kerwin Institute, Kettering Behavioral Health now has institutions where they're looking at these imagings, but you, they don't do it at children. Mm-hmm. You can't do that kind of research on children. Mm-hmm. So we miss that. So um, everything that has been said is really important, but we have to look at this from a holistic perspective and we can't miss any part of what they're saying. All this, the art, the uh, ability to relax, to find what you like, what you hope, what you care about, something that you can apply to yourself. Every bit of that counts. Thank you, thank you. And uh, right now we want you all, if you haven't already, start formulating some questions in your mind to ask our panelists. And I'll go, off, I'll go ahead and, and start it off and like you said, Sister Robbie, it's, it's, this is such a, a huge uh, issue, it's almost difficult to find a place to start. But I want to start with the perception uh, that suicide isn't a black problem um, and how that makes it difficult for parents. You were saying sometimes when our children are saying, literally sometimes when they say, I want to kill myself, you say, oh boy, your, your day ain't bad. My day, I, I had to fix, fix a flat tire and my car broke down. So. You might have some situation like that. So anyone, if you would like to um, talk about that, is 
it, it seems as though it is becoming more of an issue that we're talking about, but is it, is it where it should be? And sister, do you want to, or any I'll, of you? I'll yes, ma'am. The fastest growing population of suicide is the African American child. That's the, and the reason we're, we're a disparity. Remember, we're not as many as we are. So you have more, it's, it's rising because our numbers are lower than anybody else as a population, right. as a whole. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we're having increased children mm -hmm. committing suicide or attempting suicide at such an early age of five and six, that's a concern. That's something we need to be paying attention to. Children's Medical Center, their last medical report, the one of the, the third leading cause of emergency room care was to those little ones. They take on everything that their parents are going through. If my mom's being abused, my dad's being incarcerated, right. nobody's in my home, they're taking all that on. So the numbers, I, um, I can forward you the report and okay. you can share it with the team, yes. but the, the fastest growing population is the African American child, predominantly male. If I could, um, you don't? Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. I want to cut you off. In order to get a good grasp of what we're talking about, you have to take every bit of what each of us said and put it together. Like if you if you take anything in isolation, I think you'll miss the breadth of the issue. So one of the things that, that I'm hearing Robbie say is if, if we start at the parent, because the children are coming in, in their own window of tolerance to handle stress and the degree in which parents begin to press that pressure down on their children. And one of the things that we struggle with as a community is how much do we situation or letting them be in the room to know about the eviction and whether you choose to let them know it or not, they feel the, the weight of your stress. And because they feel the weight of your stress, they're carrying that with them in their little bodies. And then right. their bodies are responding to adult-like stresses and, and, and situations when they don't even really have the capacity to make sense of it and to sort it out. And they're thinking things through and making good choices and decisions. If, if that's cut off from the adult, then they're not able to connect with the child and help them process through emotionally and make sense of what's going on in, in their lives either. So... When you think about crisis, that's a community response because exactly. how, how, how can you keep a family from, from experiencing crisis if the resources there aren't in the community right. to allow the crisis to alleviate? So it's definitely a community-based problem where I totally agree with Robbie that it starts with the parent and them being able to access services and therapy for themselves. So then they're able to come down to the level of the child and relate to them on an emotional level to help relieve their stress and alleviate their anger. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Um, the issue of, we live in a very toxic environment, um, and I think we can see that by the number of, not only the, the, the rising number of infant mortality death, but we're also seeing black women who are dying in pregnancy or right after pregnancy. Uh, and then we're saying that this is the stresses of uh, this uh, racist, uh, uh, um, sexist society. How much does that play into our, our youth, our young black boys and girls committing suicide? I mean, again, I think it goes back to those generational issues. If the mother doesn't have the resources to be able to go and get 
proper health care and to see the doctor every single month and to understand what's going on with their baby and to receive whatever medication she needs or whatever health care that she needs, that baby is going to be more likely to have complications. And then once the baby is born, the mother still doesn't have access to the proper health care and it can lead to infant mortality. So I, I, I'm seeing this as a community and a generational issue, and we need to really focus on um, making sure that we have community resources and that we are having the conversation with these mothers about what's going to happen if they don't utilize the resources. Because sometimes it's hard to get people to understand that this is a real issue. This is It doesn't discriminate against anyone, um, and you need to go get the help that um, that's going to be able to help you and your baby have a healthy, happy, productive life. And so we need to continue having these conversations and continue educating mothers on these topics. Because I believe a lot of women, they just don't know. They don't know um, the, the consequences of their neglect or the consequences of not utilizing the resources that are available and I really think that us educated people in here, we have to go out and spread the word and it's our responsibility, our human responsibility to make sure that we are educating other people on the knowledge that we have, which is why we're up here having this panel conversation. I'm learning from them, they're learning from me, I'm gonna learn from the questions that you guys have and it's up to us to go out to the community and help these mothers and we really just need it to be a kind of a domino effect, chain right. reaction. I think we understand how this society is, nobody's gonna help us, we have right. to help ourselves. Right. We can't expect yeah. people who, um, put us in this environment or our historical right. origins that have led us to be in this environment to magically change, right? right? So we have to take it upon ourselves and be accountable for our own women and our health. And yeah. I'm gonna tap into that because I've been working with infant mortality for the past four years. Um, it's policy. Um, the things that are going on in our community with infant mortality, we lose four black babies before their first birthday to their white counterparts. So um, there's $8 million that has come down our through West Dayton in the past four years, five years for infant mortality, and the numbers have gotten worse. Mm -hmm. The last numbers, they are four to one. Mm -hmm. um, and the hot spots are targeted African-American communities. So we are in those communities. Um, we have a team, and I'm not going to talk about what we do completely, but we have a team of peer community health navigators that are totally focused on getting the word out to spread to help that. But I will say that infant mortality, we've, ca we've called it many things and said it's been caused by many things. It's basically caused by stress. Stress increases cortisol. Cortisol causes early contractions. Early contractions cause premature babies. Premature babies die. And that's across income level. And that's, that's across income. Because what, we're, what, what the research has found, and there's, what is that? Unnatural causes, unnecessary causes. They thought that um, it was because we're black that we're losing our babies because of genetics. They followed an, a woman from Africa. One year in the United States increased her likelihood of losing her baby 
because of the racism, poverty, stress. And wow. when a woman is living in poverty in the inner city Dayton, she can't get out by herself. There are no resources. You have to get someone an appointment. So unless we start taking the data that we collect and the information we collect and make policy changes at it, then we're not going to change. Housing is not going to change. Schools, we have the worst education system. You look at Dayton, Ohio. Everything we have, we have low income, we have poor schools, we have impoverished communities, we have no resources, we have all this, and this is fact. Mm -hmm. So I can't tell a mom that you need to eat better, mm -hmm. and but somebody needs to be making policy changes to do something about the groceries, and there are people doing that right now. Right. We can tell a mom that you need to you know, watch your children, or you need to find something for them to do, but there's nowhere for them to go and play safely. Mm -hmm. You know, so we have to take this whole thing of infant mortality and stress and death and suicide and look at it as a systemic thing that we can only change for our community and our African-American families by policy change. Right, right. This has got to come from the top. And so, Ms. Robbie. Now, it's nurturing from the bottom. We can continue to nurture here. We have to nurture our community and our families. We have to come together as organizations and educated personnel to, to nurture. But it's one of those things that you're going to have to work it from this, like just like this, right. from the top. Right. Yeah. Anyone in the I'm audience sorry. have a question? I, I have a question. So your point is valid, right? So how do you affect policy? Can you talk a little bit more about, excuse me, good evening, Shanice Turner Slaws, candidate for Dayton City Commission. And your point is valid, hence the reason why I'm running for Dayton City Commission, because you hit the nail on the head. It's about policy. So how do we really start affecting policy? How do we create policy with implementation so we can see the results? What do we need to do? We need to be mindful about who we put in office. We need to make sure that they're held accountable. We need to start seeing those policies to address those ills in our community. And so thank you very much. To the I think you're right. Because yeah. Ohio just passed this abortion exactly. law, right? And so now so many more women are going to be having issues with their pregnancies and have an unsafe care for women that can't afford it. And we know this is going to affect our communities. And so I think we have to make sure that we're continuing to fight these things and so that we can affect, you know, the policies, like you like were saying. Now, I think you're right. I will go to you next, but um, the issue of infant mortality and, and, and <coughs> uh, uh, having complications with pregnancy, that's our next conference. So we touched on it, and so we'll ease right on into that with the next one. Um, but go right ahead. Well, that's what I'm saying, Miss Robbie. I like what my sister says, but like you said, been older, been hearing these conversations since I've been a little boy, going with my parents since the 70s and 80s about policy change. We keep sending the same people at the top. So my question is really and truly, I see that no matter who you get at the top, they really don't care about people you know, say so-called middle class at the bottom because we've been having this conversation for a long time about policy change. I don't see it. I don't think it's happened unless we got someone like yourself who's going to run for office and change it. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but I'm saying so to me, as, or, or like-minded people, but I'm saying I don't, I'm, I, don't, I don't see Democrat, Republican. I see them as the same. I don't see the policy change happening. So if we don't get the policy change, there's anything else we can do on the lower level because that seems like where the change is going to have to happen. We have to advocate for ourselves. Okay. We, you just think about this. This woman whose daughter was shaken by her husband, her family came together, they put the bill together, they went to the courts, they went all the way up, and now they have a law. 
you know, we lose babies and children every day, all day. So, so to bring it, um, and not to change the subject because the subject, subject no, suicide. No, thank you very much. To bring it back to the subject, uh, how, what policies? I mean, because we're looking at individuals, we're looking at the, 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 uh, the school system, and we're looking at the community. I mean, where do you start? What what policies can can I mean, we your put in housing place policies, your education okay. policies. Mm -hmm. You know, you children don't learn the way they used to in 1960. Right. We don't have that same, but the school system hasn't changed. It's I got a child who's already struggling with home environment, this, 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 and this, and I got to sit in school all right. day. We have children, and I'm not one who, I, I, I'm, I like diagnosis, medication is needed where it's needed, right. but if a child is struggling with ADD or ADHD, they're not going to be able to sit in the classroom all day long. Mm -hmm. And that is a legitimate diagnosis from a mother who struggled with mental health and issues and concerns and stress during childbirth. That's a realistic diagnosis. So if we don't do something, then those children will feel hopeless, helpless, they'll be behind. Right. And, they, and that hopelessness is what leads to the suicide. Mm -hmm. If they don't have the resiliency to fight for themselves or to advocate for themselves and their families don't have the resiliency to fight, then that's going to lead to that hopelessness that's going to say, I don't need to be here. There's right. nothing worse than a child saying, I don't need to be here, or an adult even, saying, I'm, I'm more trouble to my community and my family than I am helpful. System. Um, in terms of policy, um, when we're looking at kids and teens, the majority of their time is spent in school, and yeah. so that's that's an area that we have to tackle because if you think about it, the schools have our kids from pre-K right. to 12th grade. That's what 13, 14 years that you have to really help them with their socio-emotional learning to help them learn um, how to properly express like how they're feeling, how to deal with things, how to handle things head on, and um, you know, really develop that um, like a healthy emotional being, right? That healthy mental mental wellness, right? And so part of it is that, you know, our schools they they want to throw social workers and want to throw therapists and stuff in there after the fact and it's not built into the fabric of how right. of the learning. When you have kids for 14 years, there's no reason why kindergarten part of the curriculum is not how like emotion words. Yeah, it, there's no reason why that's not a part of the curriculum. There's no reason why our kid because part of it is, you know, when my kids were in kindergarten, you know, they get in trouble if they hit somebody. But my kid hit them because they're angry. But they don't know how to express that they're angry, right? So then, but you, but then you want to suspend my kid, right? Because our kids get suspended at higher rates. And we're not really addressing the fact that this kid doesn't know how to properly express anger or frustration or have the words and a lot of times kids are frustrated because they don't have the words they they which is leading to folks not listening to them right and so then they get labeled and then they get written off and then they get pushed through the system and then by the time they're 18 now we're gonna push them out and then now they're in the world to have to deal with all these adult issues and they've had for 14 years mm. people that have I see you every day like right. these have been my teachers every day for the past 14 years and yeah, I know how to do algebra, but I don't know how to handle when I lose somebody close to me. Or I know how to, um, what I don't even know that they're teaching home ec no more, or like right. some of the other things that we, you know, got to learn. But um, but they don't know how to handle some of those adult things that are, that, that, that's going to happen for them, right? Because life happens for everybody, but they don't know how to...
it and handle it and everything is reactive. And so being in a war, right, that's what the dominant culture tells us and that's that's their answer because that's what they see on TV, that's what they hear in music, that's what they know and then you feel you mix that with the pain, right? That's a perfect blend for a person to hurt themselves, harm themselves, and attempt and complete suicide. I had black teachers. I had teachers that lived in my neighborhood. My principal lived around the corner from me. My fifth grade teacher lived down the street. Like, so they were in our community. They knew the kids by name. They knew our parents. They could have these conversations and they didn't feel like, well, oh, it's just some extra to do. I gotta call this parent because this kid is acting out. No, I'm calling your mother because you seem like something is, you know, I'm gonna I'm get you, I'm gonna talk to you and we gonna, we gonna talk about it. But because they had that relationship, they could then also call your parents and put them on alert when something was going on with you too. And then, you know, talk to you about it. We don't have that. So we have to look at how our kids are being <laughs> interacted with every day by some of these teachers that are coming in from other communities. Right. And they're reinforcing things and our kids are feeling the impact of that. Sister Monika, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. Um, um. I'll try to be quick. So um, in terms of policy, policy takes a very long time to change. And it's a long-term strategy for some very crisis-based problems that we're dealing with now. So when I think policy, I'm thinking, okay, but what about the kids that are struggling with suicide and depression now? What do, what do we do about those kids? And not to put too much on you, but in terms of solution, I think it's really supporting the work of nonprofit organizations right. like Sunlight right. Village. It's, it's learning where the money is going in the community and knowing that these big behavioral health organizations who are getting the majority and the bulk of the money aren't doing with it what a Sunlight Village will do with it or aren't catering to the problem or looking at the problem from a perspective that that Robbie and her staff will look at it so like thinking about how do how do I impact policy can be a really big thing to think about but how can I donate ten dollars to Sunlight Village like you can do that easily right. so I think it's like looking at small ways that we can impact change on a grander level then trying to bringing attention to, you can literally start a conversation. What we're having now right. is how you change policy. Right. You, bring, you bring awareness to the community, the community begins to advocate for this because there's, th as, a, as a registered nurse who did contract work, I worked in telemetry, oncology, there's millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars flowing there and the money is not in mental health. So we have to bring attention to mental health so that the money can start coming to mental health by policy. That's what I'm talking about. So yes, it's a long-term process, but we can start that just by getting people in who believe in what we're talking about and believe in our community. Sisters had her hand on my Yes, heart. I'm sorry. And it's kind of a double-edged sword, too, because first and foremost, back to your point in regards to 
the American School Counselor Association does uh, have uh, been for social-emotional development in a K-12 building. However, most of our schools, the school counselors now have to deal with scheduling. We are no longer allowed to do the mental health piece or the other counseling pieces we have. Mm -hmm. So that has tied our hands. One of the other questions that I wanted to ask um, you all in particular, because one of the things working in urban school that I've noticed is that kind of the big um, corporations that are getting the contracts, they are not um, counselors of color right. who are right. coming in talking to our students. That's, that's what I was so like. So is that a barrier? And, and how do we overcome that barrier? Because I have tried my best not to offend people in my building and in my school district that I proudly belong to, but it's been very difficult. Could you tell us who you are? I am. My name is Trishel Campbell. I am a school counselor at Dunbar High School proudly.
um, Emerge America, and they would so they will take a teacher, a nurse, like whoever. And if you are passionate about doing more on the political scale, so maybe running for the school board or things like that, where it's us in those positions, they'll actually train you to do that, and that way you can go in there and not feel like you don't know how to have the conversation with the other folks that are sitting at the table. Okay, I think too, to piggyback off of what you're saying, it's important that we start building relationships. We're all up here, you know, educating everybody with our, within our own free will. We're not getting paid for this. And so there are colleges all over the <laughs> oh, sorry. I mean, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so what, the point I'm making is there are people who are willing to come out to your school and talk to your students, talk to your teachers. We were around all of these colleges, and there are plenty of educated people. Um, I know I see Ms. Keisha out here. Um, I was able to go through um, a youth mental health training where I was able to get certified to understand signs and symptoms of youth mental health. And it's just that education piece, but I think building relationships with people and um, utilizing the resources around you, bringing them in, talking to your parents. Um, I compete in pageantry. I'm trying to be the next uh, Miss Ohio USA with my platform being mental health awareness. And when you have a crown in the sash, Everybody just gives you all of this attention for, you know, unknown reasons. And so I plan on using that platform to go out into schools and talk to students about their mental health, educating them about why it's important, how it's going to affect them in their everyday life, how it's going to affect their future. And I think just utilizing resources, building relationships, understanding the resources that we have, and if we don't have them, invest in the ones that we do have so we can strengthen them and begin to take the next step once we leave. You know, we always just stop here and we just keep going to the next conversation and learning more. Bring in these people to your, um, wherever you work or wherever you are engaging with youth and have them educate your young people. Young people like other young people to listen to them or they, you'd be surprised as a mentor how many young people want to talk to you about their problems. I think it's a misconception that, oh, young people don't want to talk, they don't want to express themselves. They just need to feel comfortable and they just need to know that they're in a safe place and they will freely open up to you. And if they know they'll be received, I think it's a, are they cutting us out? No. Okay. Uh, I think you're trying to let you down at the end, because I haven't heard anything about okay. what they have. Okay, well, <laughs> my, my sister, I definitely want, um, well, I'll pose this next question, because basically we have our sister here because of the heaviness of the uh, subject. We asked her because each uh, program, as we did the first, we wanted to, um, 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 synchronize it with the artists that are in the community. And so please look at some of her beautiful art. And so that will um, open up the question, is how important uh, is the disappearance of like art programs, of, of, of home ec that you said, of these other type of skills where you had auto mechanics and electricity, electricians, uh, how important is that? And then, because we do have a short amount of time left, how how it has the internet and social media 
uh, impacted our young people as far as we're gonna have to do a part two. We're gonna have to do a part two. Um, anyone wants to ask? Well, we'll get your question. What's your question, my brother? My name is Bishop John Jennings. I'm a pastor here in Dayton, Ohio, and I would like to ask the panel what role or what are, are the statistics of absent fatherhood contributing to youth um, depression and suicide? All Thank right. you. So we got a bunch of, one last one, and we'll just close it out with you all answering whichever one. Black is, father is in crisis. The data is all over the place. Crisis uh, spiritual crisis institutions as well. What role do they play? So mm. his question, my question, <laughs> and we'll close it out with that. I won't even say another Talk word. About that. We'll go right here. Well, I'm Miss Love. I'm an artist from Dayton, Ohio, and I've been um, expressing myself through artwork. Um, whenever I'm feeling emotional or anything, I just put it out on paint on the canvas or I skated out, I really skate also. But what I've been doing recently is um, doing affirmations. So this is my newest one that I did today. Um, it says, free your mind, don't let the thoughts in your head control you. It all begins and ends in your mind. What you give power to has power over you if you allow it. Happiness starts inside, you are the only one who controls your thoughts, think positive. And I think that's very important because we are, we control our own minds. And like, it's hard to flip it to positive. Like if you're just really down and like feeling empty, but I feel like we all can do it if you got help. Like what helped me was um, motivational um, videos on YouTube. I started doing that. In 2015, my friend was like, oh, have you heard Les Brown? And that was my first motivational speaker I um, started listening to. Now I listen to Steve Harvey, Mel Robbins, a whole bunch of people. So I just think that's another way to just get your emotion out because um, it's relieving for me. to really 
have somebody that they can talk to, even if it's not the parent, that's okay, but have that space to talk to somebody in a non-judgment, you know, where they're not being judged and they're able to um, really learn about themselves and really grow in a um, positive and healthy way. So. Right. And what we'll do is just go okay, down the cool. line and then we'll close it out. Yes. I wanted to address the issue of um, the role of religion and the church in this. Um, I know from mentoring, I'm seeing a lot of young people who are beginning to separate from the church um, because of negative experiences or things that they've seen on social media. And so I think if we want to get young people back into the church, because research has shown too that having a, uh, a spiritual connection to whoever God, you know, they may pray to helps with depression and helps with coping and so we have to get our young people trusting again it's a community problem as well like miss robbie has said where we have disconnected our children have disconnected that, that comes disconnecting from the church and can't learn about god or i i don't know who i can talk to we say well we have to make sure that we are receptive to young people when they do come to us, regardless of how silly they may sound. We have to understand that they are young and they are developing and they don't fully understand what they're feeling. They don't know the best way to express it. So it may just come off as, oh, you're fine. You're just going through something. We all went through it. And so we have to make sure that we are receiving them well. And that goes with members of the church because reach out and to talk to us if we're not receptive of them, regardless of their mistakes, regardless of their life choices. And that's all I'm going to say. Well, I'm going to tackle that Christian thing too. Because as a Christian, um, I have spent a lot of my time speaking to pastors. Um, I believe in spiritual warfare. I believe in spirituality. I know who my Heavenly Father is, and I know that a lot of pastors don't believe in mental health. Um, and I've talked to some who said, we're going to pray about it, and I'm like, that's all good, but if you got cancer, are you going to just pray about it, or are you going to go yep. see a doctor too? Right. So like I said, your brain is the most important organ in your body. If a child or a person is struggling with any mental health issues, depression, anxiety, stress, grief, loss, if we don't get over the death as well as some of Betty did, then maybe I should talk to somebody. But the pastor, the people, the leaders of the church have to be receptive and understanding that mental health is a illness. It's a brain disease. And we should treat it just like we treat everything else. So getting the pastors to understand that there is a balance there, you know, um, and who's, who's receptive to that. You've seen a lot of churches now who do Christian counseling. And I love it. Um, but you just can't go pray this away. And I believe in prayer. Don't get me wrong. I believe in me. I believe in all that. Right. But I also believe that God is a practical God. And we have to be prepared. You know, he's gonna, like they said, and you know. He put folks exactly. there. Yeah, he put folks in place. Yes, he put someone there to help you. So, but, um, so that was one piece that I wanted to make sure I covered. But then in closing, I think that we really should also never forget to focus on the family. Right. Because our families are really struggling. Um, the school plays a key role, but we have to, we must, 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 must focus on the family. Now, that mom is intimidating. We have to be able to put supportive things. I think the school was now talking to, the school in GDPM, which is part of the Soda Bass and Hilltop, was actually talking about doing PTAs and PTOs in the complex, place-based stuff. You know, so if they have two or three kids or they're trying to take their grandmother, their elder, you know, but there's a lot of things going on in our community that we have to pay attention to, to our family, so. Thank <laughs> you.
we have just this closing five, yeah. and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, I'll just kind of tag on to what uh, Robbie said, kind of going along with the church, because I do speak at a lot of churches, and um, you mentioned about the black father um, and being absent, but when you said that, that is a very valid, true um, situation within the community, but with the, the father being absent is like, well, who does that leave? That leaves the mother. Mm -hmm. And she's the one who's taken primarily the role of rearing and, and, and chastisement and discipline. And if we're not seeing about the black mom and she's the one providing the primary care for the children, then she has no support in that. So... Um, and, and from the things that I know, the women are the majority number in the church. So mm -hmm. if something's going to be done to help uh, combine mental health and ministry, then targeting the black mother and supporting her with wraparound services and you know church support would seem like it would be the best route to go. If the mother isn't kind of getting that help and the, and, the, and the support that she needs from the father, again, that's one of those other things that pushes down right. on her and her inability to parent. So um, I think that's critical and think that's crucial. Um, and, and one of the things that I'm seeing a lot in my practice is this feeling of abandonment that women and boys are having from the mother. They're not coming in talking about dad that much. They're saying, I was abandoned by my mother. And they're needing to work through that. So um, I'm seeing that more than I'm seeing issues with dad, even though that exists. But if the mother, that emotionally unavailable mother, is present and is supposed to be rearing and providing discipline and she's not doing that, then you have that compounded issue of exactly. neglect with mental health, exactly. going into a school with no support, and it's just a domino effect. All right. Well, I want to thank, uh, uh, let's give it up for our panelists. appreciate you all taking uh, time out of your busy schedules to come out and to talk to us on this very important subject. I want to thank all of you. Give yourselves a round of applause for coming out. And I want to um, just encourage us to uh, learn more as we have uh, these excellent panelists up here get their information and help spread the word Sunlight Village and all of their um, uh, organizations that they represent. Um, also go on Facebook and like our page, uh, Knowledge Cipher Conference Series. Knowledge Cipher Conference Series. Like our page, we have uh, a conference. And I love listening to Final Call Radio. I don't care who you are, black brother and sister. You gotta watch your right. And you gotta watch your left. It's not your enemy, it's your friend. And so today, you gotta watch who's sleeping in the bed with you. Because the scripture said two will be laying in the bed. He's gonna take one and he's gonna leave one. Two will be grinding at the mill. He's gonna take one and leave one because Christ brings about a separation between the wicked and those who are lovers of righteousness. In Christ, all things are possible, huh? Check out, they had a trial. Can you imagine? They had a trial. 
after they had scandalized Jesus' name, made the people who were his supporters suspect his miracles. Oh, yeah, some blind folk did see. But hell, they saw by the power of the devil. Yeah, some deaf folk heard all right. But what was the power that he used? Yes, he turned water into wine, but this is magic. So the people saw with their eyes, they experienced the man, but yet they were so easily led to hate the man. They were so easily led to turn on the man. And when the man went to trial, the man did not speak. Why don't you speak, Jesus? And if he could speak today, he would say, I'm not speaking because it's not my trial. It's yours. You speak. He didn't speak because it wasn't his trial. The people whom he had worked among, the people whom he had taught, the people whom he had healed, it was their trial. And at his trial, I didn't see Lazarus come up and stop the proceedings and say, wait a minute. I was dead and the man brought me to life. The blind man that he healed and the woman whose faith had made her whole during the time of the trial, none of them came. False witnesses arose. And that's what you got to watch out for, the false witnesses. They put the true witnesses to sleep. Bribe them, destroy them, intimidate them, be thin to them. Then false witnesses begin to talk. And then Jesus became scourged in the synagogues. He spat on him, he kicked him, mocked him. Finally, in a mock trial, they said, well, we've got to let one of these men go. You want Jesus, or do you want Barabbas? And the people said, hey, give us Barabbas. What was wrong with the people? That they would condemn a holy man and choose a thief. You know what it tells you about leadership? You only get what you deserve. You deserve a thief because you're thieves. You deserve a murderer because you're a murderer yourself. And that's why you like your own. So the people that crucified Jesus were of the same mind as Barabbas. So give us Barabbas. Kill the Holy One that's trying to bring us to the kingdom of God. He kept telling us the kingdom of God is at hand. You see that hand? The hand is the executor of the will of the mind. The scriptures say the kingdom of God is within you. But if it's at hand, that means that there's work 
to be done in order for the kingdom to be built. But every time you make excuse for labor, excuse for work, excuse for digging into yourself to mine out the kingdom of God that is buried deep down within. You excuse your fornication. You excuse your adultery. You excuse your drunkenness, your reefer smoking, your cocaine dealing, your freakish action. You delay the work of the kingdom which is at hand because you don't want to work on it. You want to think on it. You want to talk on it. But you don't want to get in and work to bring it forth and make it reality. So Jesus was a terrible man to them. Jesus was too tough for them. People always talk this old madness about how they love Jesus. Hypocrites. Jesus said, Lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. That's a big command to preachers. Talk about you love Jesus. Look at the condition of your congregation. Look at the condition of black people. Have they been fed? Are they being nourished? If you feed them, they're growing stronger. And if they're growing stronger, you should see it by the work of their hands. But here we are in 1981, and the president have cut off the food stamps. The president have cut off cedar. And over 600,000 families going off welfare. And you saying, Lord, what is we going to do? Lord, don't leave us now. Lord have never left you. You left him. You left yourself. So they crucified him. Put a crown of thorns on his head. You know the story, but you may not know the meaning. That's tragic to be able to quote the book but don't understand what the book is talking about. Anybody can read it and quote it, but the Bible said, blessed is he who reads and understands. So understanding is equal to reading. Hmm. His hands nailed, his feet nailed, crown of thorns on his head, pierced in his side. He asked for water, they give him vinegar. And he begins to cry out, I think, in the ninth hour. Things got dark from the sixth to the ninth hour. Then he begins to talk. And he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Look at the words. You promised me. You promised me that if I drank the bitter cup, I wouldn't permanently die. You promised me if I gave it up, you would return it to me. You promised me, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the boys nearby said, look at him. 
he calls for Elijah. Wait a minute. How did Elijah get in this? Who is Elijah here? That Jesus is calling on Elijah. He said he called for Elijah. Let us see, will Elijah take him down? And it said he gave up the ghost, meaning the spirit left him. They took him and laid him in a tomb. Put a stone in front of the tomb and put a guard in front of the stone. Come on. But the man who was charged with God in the tomb, he fell asleep and an angel of the Lord appeared. Not the Lord, but an angel of the Lord, a messenger from the Lord, right. appeared and rolled the stone away. And when they looked, the man that they thought was dead, he had gotten up and gone, brother. Now those old faithless disciples, the faithless disciples busted up, went crazy. Didn't know what to do. The master was gone. What are we going to do? That's the way all of us act. When one of our leaders is taken from us, what are we going to do? Our leader's gone. Our leader's gone. What you mean, what you going to do? Nina Simone wrote the song, What are we going to do now that the king of love is gone? I can hear my sister singing that song. What you mean, Nina? What are we going to do? Do what he told you. The king of love is not gone because his physical body is gone. The principles that made him what he was and is and shall be, they are living principles rooted in the universe and its order. And if you and I carry those principles into practice, he ain't gone nowhere. He's alive in you and me. All praise is due to Allah. This is the all-new Final Call Radio, streaming messages and music from the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan worldwide, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Download the Final Call Radio app and take us everywhere. On your phone, on your computer, on your tablet, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also log on to FinalCall.com and click the Listen Live button or FinalCallRadio.com. Final Call, Final Call. Call Radio, the official voice of the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. Greetings from National Network viewers. 